All right, well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 28 tonight. 1 Kings 16, 8 through 28. Uh, during the Christmas season, we think about and sometimes even sing about uh, we three kings, right? Well, tonight we're going to talk about we three bad kings. And we're going to see three bad kings in our scripture tonight. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 8 through 28. Does everybody know what an atheist it is? An atheist? An atheist is somebody who at least claims to not believe in God, right? They say they don't believe there is a God. Well, truly, according to the Word of God, there is no such thing as an atheist. Everybody deep down, whether they will admit it or not, most of the time they won't, but deep down they know something caused all this. All right? And as Christians, we know who that is. We know that's God. Well, there's many atheists who actually have, and especially logical atheists, atheists who actually think about things and tell the truth and are not just militant and are really angry against everything and against a God they say they don't even believe in. Really, many logical atheists have conceded to the fact that the evidence actually does point to the existence of a Creator. Uh, Many of them have weighed the evidence and they will make the claim, they will agree that, yeah, the evidence pretty much points to this just not happening, okay? In other words, it takes more faith to believe it just occurred over billions of billions of years that that people make up because that's not even provable. And so they'll concede to that, that, yeah, there probably is a creator. However, those same people refuse to believe in God despite there being all this evidence for God. Many of these atheists are quoting as saying something to this effect. I don't want to live for God because if I do, I won't be able to live for myself. See, that's what it comes down to. They don't, if they concede that there is a God, that means they will have to live according to God's standards. They don't want to do that. They want to live according to their own standards. They want to live for themselves. So in saying that, <clears throat> these atheists, really any unbeliever, and sometimes believers even fall into this trap, but they assume that living for God is less rewarding and less interesting than living for oneself, than living for the ways of the world. So rather than pursuing godliness, people will pursue self-gratification. They'll pursue things that they think will make them happy. They seek fulfillment in all kinds of things. They seek it in sex. They seek it in money. They seek it in alcohol or drugs or jobs or hobbies. And the list goes on and on and on. The things that people try to seek to find fulfillment. And they assume that the life of a Christian is boring. And so they go after all this stuff. And they move from one thing to another. Trying to find fulfillment. Trying to find meaning and purpose in life. So they assume that's the way to go. They assume that's more fun. Well, is that assumption true? One way to test that assumption is to look at the lives of people who have wanted to do something supposedly more interesting than follow God and see how it worked out for them. And we meet some people like that tonight in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 8 through 28. Their names were Elah, Zimri, and Omri. These were three bad kings from the northern kingdom who followed their fathers before them. 
and the kings before them. They followed Nadab and Basha in repeating the sins of Jeroboam. So they sought the ways of the world just like those guys did and thought they would have a different outcome. Foolishness. Total foolishness. But each one of these guys' stories gives us an opportunity to consider what kind of life we want to live. So we must ask this question as we study the lives of these guys. Is it more beneficial and satisfying to live with God or without God? Is it more beneficial and more satisfying to live for God or for ourselves? Well, let's see how it worked out for these guys. The next king after Basha, whom we've already looked at, was Elah. In verse 8 it says, In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terzah. So now (coughs) Elah is the king, son of Basha. We already know Basha was a wicked king. Well, we see right off the bat where Elah doesn't last long. He was killed by one of his rivals in verses 9 through 10. It says, Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. So what is this guy trying to find happiness in? The bottle, right? He was drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terza. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then what happened next is very predictable. We've seen it happen time and time again through this study. Just as Basha destroyed uh, the house of Nadab, he killed all his relatives, so Zimri destroyed the house of Elah. Kills all his relatives. We're also going to see he goes even further and kills all his friends. Verse 11, it says, Then it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. So this was a very evil act on this guy's part. But again, this was also the fulfillment of prophecy. This is also another proof that God's Word always comes true time and time again. Remember what we've already seen here. Elah was the son of Basha, right? And what had God pronounced against Basha and his sons for worshiping other gods and leading the people into sin and idolatry? It promised to destroy them, right? Destroy his family. And that's what we see take place. It says thus in verse 12 through 13, that Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha according to the word of of the Lord, just like the Lord had said, it came to pass, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his sons, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And so the Lord's word came to pass once again. Well, what was Elah thinking? What was he doing? We find out a little bit more detail about this in verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that Elah's army was in Philistia, or the city of Gibbethon, which was in the land of the Philistines. And they were there trying to recapture some land that had once belonged to Israel that had been won during the days of King David. We find that out in chapter 15, verse 27. 
So the question is, why was it Elah with his troops? Why was he not leading his troops into battle and doing something that would have been worthwhile, doing something to expand the kingdom of God? He was the king. That was his job. That would have been something worthy of doing, right? But instead, he was at the house of Arza getting drunk, according to verse 9. So Elah died one of the most dishonorable deaths in the Bible. Instead of dying on the battlefield, defending his country and reclaiming some of the promised land, which would have been an honorable job, a a godly job, a thing a king of Israel should have been doing, his life ended in a drunken stupor. How many of you have heard of Elah before tonight? I'm sure you've read through this, but we don't remember who he is, do we? But if Elah would have regained much of the promised land and lived for God, we'd all know who who he was. We'd all know his name, but he wasted his life in the bottle. He wasted his life getting drunk. So this should stand as a very strong warning to us about the dangers of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Now, What I'm about to say next, a lot of people don't agree with, but it's what the Bible says. The Bible does not prohibit alcohol. It actually celebrates the proper use of alcohol as a blessing from God. The fermentation of the fruit of the vine is, I believe, as old as mankind himself. We know it goes all the way back to Noah where we first see it, but somebody had to teach Noah the processes. And so it goes back a long ways. We first see in Genesis chapter 10. And the Bible praises wine as part of the earth's richness in Genesis chapter 27. And it praises it as a gift from God in Hosea chapter 2. And it says it is something to drink with a merry heart in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 7. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 28 we find that the absence of wine was a covenant curse. And so that implies to us that the abundance of wine was a covenant blessing. Wine is uh, such a blessing, as a matter of fact, that the first miracle Jesus performed in John chapter 2 was turning water into wine at the wedding celebration, right? At the end of Jesus' life, and we talked about this not too long ago, wine was one of the elements in the Last Supper that the Lord instituted and celebrated with His disciples. Wine is also a symbol of eternal glory. When the prophets foretold of the new heaven and the new earth, they said that in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. In Joel chapter 3. And in Isaiah chapter 25 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of well-aged wine. So uh, in the old creation and in the new creation, we see that wine is a gift from God. It's a blessing from the Lord. However... The Bible strongly warns against the abuse of alcohol. The abuse of wine, any alcoholic beverage, really anything that intoxicates makes you drunken. Now some people, I don't know where they get this, but they say wine in the Bible was just grape juice. If wine in the Bible was just grape juice, why is there scriptures against getting drunk? Right? Because grape juice, the last time I checked, doesn't get anybody drunk. Right? I'd be drunk all the time because I'd sip on grape juice at home, right? It was alcoholic. 
But what we need to keep in mind is the alcohol level in those days was a lot less than it is today. It was diluted down much more. So just keep that in mind if you decide to partake in some wine. But in the Old Testament, strong wine is not just a sign of God's blessing. It's also a sign of God's coming wrath in Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, there is joy and feasting for strength, but not for drunkenness. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 verse 1 that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 says that whoever is led astray by wine or strong drink will suffer a wide range of damaging physical and spiritual consequences. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5 and 1 Peter 4, We see drunkenness is always included in the list of ungodly behaviors that belong to the sinful nature of man. And this is such an important spiritual issue to Paul that he draws a direct contrast between getting drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be ye filled with the Spirit. Yes. That's what he says. Ephesians goes on in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, to say that drunkenness gets in the way of singing uh, God's praise and hearing God's Word and to loving God's people. So, although we have freedom, some freedom in the use of alcohol, its abuse quenches the Spirit of God in our lives, according to the Apostle Paul. So when we deal with this topic of alcohol, and a lot of people like to to deal, a lot of people like to throw in something and say, well, Jesus drank, or they drank in the Bible. When we deal with this topic, instead of just asking, is this permissible, right? We need to ask the question, is this beneficial? Is this beneficial to the body of Christ? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, that all things are lawful for me. There's a lot of things Paul could have done without sinning. But he said, not all things are helpful. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. In other words, that word just means not all things build up other people. So if we're going to partake of alcohol, we should make sure that any wine as the psalmist said that we're using to gladden our hearts, is a holy and God-centered centered pleasure. Okay? Something that is received with true thanksgiving, according to 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. All things that God said we can partake of, Timothy, or Paul says in 1 Timothy, should be received with thanksgiving. Right. And that it's not doing anything to ruin our testimony or to cause a brother and sister in Christ to stumble. Mm -hmm. Remember this. Perception is reality. Okay? If someone sees you at the Texas Roadhouse drinking a big glass of wine or drinking a beer, it's lawful for you to do that. As long as you're not getting drunk. As long as you're giving thanks to the Lord for that. As long as you see that as a blessing from God. But if somebody down the road here that's lost comes in here in there and sees you drinking that, what are they going to think you're doing? That's right. 
they're going to think you're getting drunk, right? Perception is reality, and that will become a stumbling block to them. So be mindful of that. Just because something is lawful for us does not mean it's beneficial, does not mean it edifies others. And also, remember this, when somebody say, well, hey, Jesus drank, Jesus did partake of the fruit of the vine. But Jesus never allowed his enjoyment of the fruit of the vine to get in the way of serving other people, to get in, to get in the way of doing the Father's will, and to get in the way of doing kingdom work. Never. Remember those things when dealing with alcohol. So that's what Elah tried. He tried to live it up in the bottle. So a lot of people try that. Did it work out for him? No. Do we know many people at all that it's worked out for? No. We don't. Well, Zimri, we encountered Zimri. He knocked off Elah, remember? So Zimri, his life seems to go pretty well. Go, seems to be going pretty well for him, at least up to this point. His conspiracy has worked to perfection, and now he sits upon the throne of Israel. But unfortunately for old Zimri, his kingship didn't last very long at all. Verse 15 says, In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terzah, Seven days. That's not a misprint. He only reigned for seven days. He was overthrown only a week after he took the throne. The shortest reign in Israel's history this guy had. And this reminds us, or at least it should remind us, how quickly things fall apart whenever we exalt ourselves rather, rather than allowing God to put us where he wants us to be. Anytime we try to do things our own way, by our own plans and by our own schemes, it's going to fall apart every single time. And that's exactly what happened to Zimri. Zimri, we see here, his pride went before a fall, right? The Bible warns us of that. We also see that those who live by the sword usually die by the sword. Right? The way I like to put it in old Bodkal terminology is if you live the thug life, you're probably going to die the thug life, right? Mm-hmm. Beware of that. That's exactly what happened to Zimri. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. He was a violent man who came to a violent end. In verse 15 through 16, it says, And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. But while Zimri was busy assassinating Elah, that's the king who was talking about being killed. Remember, he assassinated Elah. While he was busy doing that, it says in verses 16 through 17 that all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon, and they besieged Terzah. So now the stage was set for Zimri to be killed. In verses 18 and 19, And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. So he committed suicide because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. So Zimri, again, was on the throne for only one week, just, just seven days. But seven days was enough for him to follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam and sin against God. That's how wicked this guy was. 
And so the Word of God ruled against him. And Zimri died in his sins. How quickly the mighty fall, right? Or at least the ones who think they're mighty. They're mighty in the world's eyes. They raise themselves up in the world's ways. But again, that never lasts. One day we see here Zimri was on top of the world. He had everything he wanted. And then just a few days later, he died in absolute despair by committing suicide. He had had everything. He was the king of his own universe, right? But since he went against God, his position was never secure. And he lost it all. When we grasp at things for ourselves, that stuff's not secure. But if God gives us something by His will, that's planted in concrete. That's more secure than concrete because that's God's will. God has given it to us. And so we don't have to worry about it. Sadly, Ozemri's story is not unique to himself because many people spend their whole lives trying to reach the top just like this guy did by never seeking God's will, by never seeking what God wants. And in the end, any success that they have really proves to be fleeting every single time. And they'll have to leave every bit of it behind, just like Zimri did. And they may well die in despair, just like Zimri did. So are we living for what lasts? Or will it all burn up and crumble and fall on our heads like ashes like it did for Zimri. The things of this world will not last. They're going to pass away. They're going to burn up, just like this house that Zimri caught on fire and committed suicide in. All that stuff's going to pass away. So are we living for something that really is going to last? Well, (laughs) there's one other king that we need to consider in this text, and he was the worst of them all. If Elah was a drunkard and Zimri was a murderer and a self-murderer, then Omri was the epitome of evil. After Zimri died, the text says in verse 21, the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king, and half followed uh, Omri. So now, not only is the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom divided, But the northern kingdom is divided amongst itself. And things are going even, getting even farther away from God. Things are just falling apart for the northern kingdom. Now they're in civil war. And this civil war between these guys is going to last for several years. But Omri is going to come out on top. He's not going to be denied what he wants. It says in verse 22 through 23 that in the end, the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. So Omri became the official king of the northern kingdom. And this guy, humanly speaking, was a, a great man. He was a success in the eyes of the world. And he was such a strong leader that he was anointed the next king by popular demand. Hey, he won the popular vote. And after this political and military instability that we see here in this short civil war, he was able to unify the kingdom, and he was able to bring relative peace even between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
And once he had consolidated his power, we find out that he built this new grand capital city in the northern kingdom. In verse 24, it says, He bought the hill of Samaria from uh, Shemir for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemir, owner of the hill. So he built a capital city in the north to rival the capital city in the south. And Samaria remained the capital city of the northern kingdom until it was attacked by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And so Omri was a famous king. Uh, He made his mark on history. And his name appears, uh, it pops up again in history. And there's ancient Assyrian documents that refer to Israel as the land of Omri. And so this guy, he had a name in history. Uh, His dynasty even lasted for three generations. Yet for all his earthly accomplishments, Omri was a spiritual failure. And that's why the Bible says very little about this guy's success, but a great deal about his sin. In verses 25 and 26... It says, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. That's pretty bad. He done worse than all those other guys. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin which, uh, by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. <clears throat> so the Bible has nothing of lasting good to say about Omri. Nothing at all. The Bible says he was even worse than Jeroboam. That's how the Bible lets us remember Omri. In fact, to this point in history, the Bible tells us he was the worst king that Israel ever had. Now, earthly accomplishments do have their place in life. Okay, It's not as if we shouldn't try to accomplish things upon the earth. We should. We should try to accomplish things in God's will. We should try to accomplish things for the kingdom of God. They have their place. And even the Bible acknowledges here that Omri was a great builder. But we've talked about this before. What is God most concerned with? God is most concerned with the character of a man. And God is most concerned with the condition of a person's heart, right? Not worldly accolades. He's concerned with the condition of the heart. And so the Bible is telling us in so many words here that in the grand scheme of things, Omri's achievements do not matter. They don't matter. They're forgotten. I didn't, I had, I'm sure I've read through this. I know I have. But I had forgotten Omri's name too until I studied for this lesson throughout the week. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator I read on 1 Kings, said this, His earthly achievements caused heaven to yawn. That's what they were good for. Because they had nothing of everlasting significance about them. So are we living for anything that really matters? Are we living uh, for anything that's going to last for eternity? Or is heaven yawning at what we're doing? Has heaven yawned at everything we've done in the year 2020? Some people, again, are living only for earthly passions. Some people are only living for sports. Some people are only living for work. Some people are only living for the, the chicken farm and the cattle farm, uh, uh, whatever your job is. Some people are only living for pleasure. Some people are only living to party. Some people are only living for popularity, some for power. Whatever the case, 
People are looking for meaning and purpose in all these avenues. But the reality is, living for anything other than the love of Jesus Christ or for the glory of God is totally fleeting. It's totally empty. And you'll continue to go from one thing to the next, trying to find meaning and purpose and happiness, joy, and you'll never find it. See, living for ourselves always, always, always turns out to be more boring than living for God. Every single time. It always turns out to be a waste of time. And the Bible shows us this in the tedious repetition of these bad kings of Israel. Each king takes the throne. Each king reigns for a little while, some longer than others. Each king has, most of them have some pretty nice earthly accomplishments. But then each king dies and they're forgotten and it's all for nothing. After a while, this repetition becomes boring. It becomes mind-numbing, really. We read, we read it here in several places. The first place is in verse 14. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Well, what are those things? We don't know. Whatever he did, it was nothing praiseworthy. It was not worthy enough or important enough to go in the Bible. It was nothing that advanced the kingdom of God. It was nothing that promoted the glory of God. It's worthless. The Bible says exactly the same thing about Zimri and about Omri in verse 20. In verses 27 through 28, I won't read it, but it says the same thing. Each king enters and exits the same way. He took the throne, he sinned, he died. He took the throne, he sinned, he died. Over and over again. And that's the same story for every person that's ever lived who has sought happiness in the ways of the world. They come into the world, they lived, they died. That's it. The stories of these bad kings really show us also the monotony, the uselessness, the waste of time of idolatry. Again, to quote Dale Ralph Davis, he says, They are records of sinful men who simply repeat the sins and evil of those before them. Sin is never creative, but merely imitative. Listen, there's nothing original about sin. Absolutely nothing. It's a worn out record and it always ends the same way. It's bogus. I mean, we live in a society today where people are, are, they say they want to be original and they do all this weird stuff trying to be original and they dress weird and they just, people are weird, right? (laughs) They say they want to be original you're not being original. All this sin is simply uh, it's just recycled through the ages. If you want to be original, live for the Lord. The Lord is going to give you something that's going to be meaningful and it's going to be something only you can do and it's going to be worth doing. If you want to be original, live for the Lord. We have a greater variety of ways to sin in this world than we've ever had. We've got a greater variety of entertainment and we've got a, a greater variety of technology in this world to keep us busy and entertain us and all this stuff, yet people are more dissatisfied than ever. And they jump from one thing to another so quick all the time. Why is that? Because sin and the world do not bring fulfillment. Amen. And they never will. 
See, the people who live the most interesting and fulfilling lives are the ones who live for God and not for themselves. And we see this also all throughout the Bible. I mean, the people who lived for God had great adventures. They traveled to far countries. They were rescued from grave dangers. They witnessed miracles. They slew giants. They built kingdoms. And they found life in the Lord. And they found worship in the Lord. And they found meaning in the Lord. And guess what? What they found didn't end when they died. It goes on to eternity. And it lasts forever. We see the same thing in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His life was anything but boring, right? Jesus was always having conversations with people about things that really mattered. He didn't just mention the weather in passing. He didn't just talk about sports in passing. Jesus had significant conversations about eternal life with people. Jesus had conversations about uh, things that had significance. Jesus went around helping people and healing people and ministering to people and loving people. And Jesus ultimately made the greatest contribution to human history that has ever been made by providing salvation at Calvary. That's an interesting life. And he lived his life for his Father, Almighty God. So what will you do with your life? We've got a new year coming up. What will we do with it? What are we going to do with the rest of our lives? What passion is going to drive your living? It's going to be your work. It's going to be your hobbies. Is it going to be the Lord? What's going to drive us? Listen, don't live an ordinary life. Don't live a life that never has any eternal significance by doing what the world says is important. Because what the world says is important has been done time and time again. It's been tried, and it's always come up short. It's just the same old tricks with, a, with new makeup on it. Is all it is. Instead, live for God and discover what real living is is all about. Don't be like the three bad kings. Be like the true king. Seek to live life like he did. And that's how we'll have an awesome, interesting, and joyful life. Amen.